Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is Larry Olmsted, the author of a new book called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. We sit down with Olmsted to talk about why he wrote the book, what scientific and academic studies reveal about the benefits of being a fan, and how destinations can use that information to help make the case for the importance of sports events in their communities. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades. Few sports destinations can offer facilities as incredible as the location itself, but Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, Florida's Paradise Coast, is truly a sports paradise. Its brand new Paradise Coast Sports Complex and other facilities are perfect for soccer, lacrosse, football, baseball, softball, golf, pickleball, virtually every sport. And naturally, there's no better location for water skiing, sailing, and other on-the-water competitions. Off the field, athletes and their families can enjoy everything Paradise has to offer. Incredible beaches, epic outdoor adventures, team-friendly restaurants, and more. If you're looking for sports venues and a destination that can't be beat, only Paradise will do. Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, Florida's Paradise Coast. To learn more, visit sportsinparadise.com. And now, on to the conversation. There have been many books written about sports, but not many books have focused on the fans themselves. Author Larry Olmsted prides himself on finding untold stories that are sitting there waiting to be told. After an experience at a Yankees-Red Sox game that we'll talk about on this episode, he realized that there was fertile ground to explore in what makes people become sports fans and whether all that fandom is necessarily a good thing for them. It turns out it very much is. In his new book, Fans... Olmsted recites dozens of scientific and academic studies that have been done on this topic, and you might be surprised at the sheer volume of data that's out there. While the results do indeed show that sports fans are generally happier and healthier because of their interest that they show in their teams, there are also lessons here for host cities, many of which have to make a case on a daily basis either to their communities or those entities that hold the purse strings to their budgets for why sports events are important in the first place. It's more than just rooting for your team. Having events at which your teams can play also plays a vital role in the health and happiness of communities themselves. In this conversation, we talk with Olmsted about what he found in researching his book, Cities That Have Found Ways to Capitalize on Sports, and his thoughts on whether the Tokyo Olympic Games should be continuing given the challenges ahead. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Larry Olmsted, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you. It's really nice to connect with you. You have written a book called Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding. And it's a book when I first heard about it that I thought this is something that I that I need to read because I think our audience, uh, while they work in sports on a daily basis at all levels, most of them are out there, whether they know it or not, making the case for why sports events and sports fandom are important and why they're a worthwhile endeavor, let's say. <laughs> both for the business that they're in bringing sports events to their communities, uh, but also for the fans themselves and what it means to be a fan and the benefits that can come from that. And that's what you've got here in this book. So Larry, I want to talk with you, obviously, about some of the research that you have in there. But I thought before we even get into that, let's go into just a little background on on who you are and where you grew up. Were you a sports fan as a child? Are you a sports fan today? How, give me your uh, your sports background. 
Okay, sure. I grew up in Queens in New York City, so... I did as well, so uh, we've got a, a fellow New York connection here. Yeah, my father would take me to Mets games at Shea Stadium and with my brother, and we would sit in the cheap seats. And uh, before that, my sister, who's appreciably older than me, would uh, go to Dodge, Brooklyn Dodgers games with my dad. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the lineage there. You know, growing up, baseball was really the only sport I kind of attended or followed. Now I'm a fan of NFL football primarily, or as my favorite sport to watch, but I never went to games growing up in New York. And I've been a journalist for 25 plus years, written several books, and I'm always looking for what I call the story that hides in plain sight. I've written books on a lot of different topics, food and other things. And in this case, you know, in the spectator sports equation, 99.99% of the participants are spectators. But thousands of books written about sports are all about athletes and coaches and teams and even business management, but very, very little about the fans. And without the fans, obviously, no basketball players make $50 million. (laughs) For sure. I feel like we had a similar upbringing. I spent a lot of my youth in the upper deck at Shea Stadium as well, almost entirely for baseball. I think we went to one football game there (laughs) growing up, but a very similar background from there. And it was interesting. Once they started building all these newer stadiums, you know, you always think the stadium you grew up in was, was holy ground. And then after a number of years being away from New York and coming back to Shea Stadium was like, well, this place really isn't the best, necessarily <laughs> the best place to see a baseball game. But let's talk about the book. So you, you you were just kind of mentioning that, Larry, but where did the idea or, you know, give me the transition from your, your previous work in journalism and writing books. Was there a moment, a particular moment where you thought this is a ripe area to explore in a, in a book all of its own? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of my kind of good ideas come to me when I travel. Most of my writing in one form or the other involves travel. So I've been, you know, go, going around the world uh, to all kinds of places for a long time, accruing a lot of frequent flyer miles. And, you know, I'll see something or read something or have a conversation with a cab driver in another country and it'll sort of inspire me. But in this case, I was in Boston and I went to a Red Sox Yankees game at Fenway Park. I mainly, you know, I appreciate the history of, of Fenway and wanted to see a game there. And while I was there, I saw this couple that had two young kids and they had dressed their young kids, I mean, like five and seven years old in T-shirts with homophobic obscenities aimed at the Yankees. <laughs> and it really made an impact on me. It really bothered me. And I was I I thinking about it. And I was like, even thinking down to the minutia of like, they don't sell those shirts at the Red Sox gift shop. You know, you have to get them made or, you know, buy them on the gray market. And these kids probably don't even know what it says. And why would you do that? And I thought about it for like days after the game. And finally, I was like, I thought, is there something about watching sports that makes us crazy? And if there is, that would be an interesting book. So that's sort of what I started with. But as soon as I dove into the scientific research, I realized that the opposite was true that being a sports fan is is very beneficial, good for society and our mental health. And what I've come to realize now is, you know, there were 40,000 people there or whatever that day, and 39,998 of them went unnoticed because they're normal sports fans. And the reason those people stood out is because they're so different from the norm. So I kind of switched 180 degrees and have fallen in love with sports fans. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess uh, homophobic shirts, notwithstanding, you know, the, the case that you make in the book is that there, you know, there are so many benefits of being a sports fan. I mean, it makes uh, people healthier, makes your communities healthier. That's some of what I want to explore. What was really interesting to me, Larry, in, in reading through was just the, the volume of academic studies that uh, that appear to be out there from people who are actually studying 
what it is to be a sports fan, what makes them tick, um, you know, what they like, what they dislike. Was that surprising to you as you started diving in to see how much data was actually out there? It, it was, and it's a fair, uh, certainly from the psychology perspective, it's a fairly new field of study, really, you know, the first deep look into what being a sports fan does to our mental health is about 30 years ago. And since then, hundreds of studies have been done all around the world. And what was really interesting to me was, you know, different psychologists, different universities studying very different groups of fans, sometimes kids, sometimes college students, sometimes grownups of soccer, of American sports, of uh, you know, collegiate sports, all different kinds of sports, amateur, pro, all basically have the same results no matter where they're done, where they're conducted with these, you know, distinctive mental health benefits of being a sports fan. And then some of the other, you know, historical contexts, like the impact of on the civil rights movement and things, you know, uh, is not so much studies, but certainly things that historians have really written a lot about. Yeah, I loved uh, reading through some of the studies that you talk about in there, and and they're just they're interesting. I mean, some of them seem to be human nature, but there was one where they did an ice cream test. They had all these uh, fans, you know, t- taste ice cream and compared what the taste was like after a victory or a defeat, and of course, it tasted sweeter after <laughs> after their team won. But the thought of you know someone sitting down and doing these studies is is really interesting in itself. Yeah, just the methodology. And, you know, I included that one and one on superstitions uh, just because they're so quirky. Yeah, I love the superstitions one. I think he had someone in there who said it was one of his favorite studies to do, but it was also one of the most difficult ones because everyone's got their own, uh, as you can imagine, their own quirky stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, people really believe that like what they eat at home the night before a playoff game affects the outcome. What I love about sports, of course, and you touch on it uh, in your book, is it's really sort of one of the last things that you you have to be there for. It's unscripted. You have this great line in there where you talk about um, how no one waits, you know, to week seventeen to start binge watching the NFL season, you know, but they can do that for almost anything else. But you have to be there. You have to be there in the moment. I think there's an immediacy there that speaks to why this is so important to people. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the one, you know, the 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 sort of recurring theme when I talk to sports fans all around the world is, you know, wait, just wait until next year and anything can happen, right? These are, these are veins that run deep in sports fandom. And it's really the anything that can happen. I mean, uh, Chris Berman used to say, you know, that's why they play the game. If, you know, I think I say in the book, if we really believe that team USA had no chance to beat team Russia at Lake Placid, nobody would watch the game. You know, you watch because there's that glimmer of hope that there'll be a Cinderella upset. And then there is. And upsets happen all the time in sports. And you, there's no preordained outcome. I mean, you know, we just watched the Super Bowl. Everybody picked the Chiefs to beat Tampa Bay. Yeah. Right. You know, and it happens all the time. And, you know, it, once you find out it happens, it's no fun to watch. So you can't, <laughs> you know, go watch it later like Breaking Bad. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously good for advertisers. It's kind of the last thing on you know TV that we watch live, but also being there. And it's one of those things that if you go to a Mets game any given day could be the day they throw their perf- first perfect game in Mets history or somebody hits for the cycle or you know, whatever, like you can be a part of history at any given sporting event and you never know when that's going to happen unless, you know, you're like waiting for Hank Aaron's 715th home run kind of thing. <laughs> right. Right. Pretty rare in itself. Well, that's actually not a bad transition to a, another part that I wanted to talk with you about when you talk about history. We have all these moments where you see sports as this sort of moment of healing, particularly around 
crises or or you know world events. You have a a number of examples in your book. We, uh, you talk about nine uh, eleven, of course, and and what happened with baseball after that. Uh, Las Vegas is a more recent example with the with the Golden Knights and everything that that happened with their first season, which came right on the heels of the you know the horrific tragedy there uh, with the shooting uh, on the Las Vegas Strip. Talk a little bit, Larry, I guess, about your thoughts after you know piecing all this together of this role that that sports seem to take again and again at a community level. This would be obviously the the lowest types of moments, but uh, arguably it's some of the moments where I think you can make the case people need sports the most. Yeah, absolutely. And of all the different, many different threads and benefits in my book, this is my personal favorite, this um, healing power of sports after trauma in communities, cities, entire countries. And, you know, I, I used to work in the World Trade Center. And like I said, you know, went to Mets games. So I remember that first Mets Braves game, the first game played in New York after, or in any professional sport after 9 11, and how big a deal it was nationwide. I had, you know, I interviewed fans who were there who told me, you know, that was the moment it was okay to smile again, you know, really normalcy. But I always thought that was sort of a one off example until I read, researched this book and learned that it happened over and over and over. And it happens after hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and wildfires, not just, you know, terrorist attacks. But it does happen after terrorist attacks, the Boston Marathon bombing. And when I went out, the the what made the Vegas one so unique was, A, that I have spent more time in Las Vegas than any other city I haven't lived in. You know, I've been there 50 plus times, written a lot on Vegas, so I know it pretty well. And it was so recent, I was able to go out there and interview people who had been shot and who had been shot at. And when they t- were told me at one after another, you know, they're afraid to leave their house. Then they go to the Knights games and the Knights literally save their life. I mean, the mayor of Las Vegas told me the Knights were like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Everyone from cab drivers, bartenders to shooting victims told me the same thing. And that's when I had this sort of aha moment that you can't trivialize sports. It, you know, some people aren't fans and they say, oh, it's a waste of time you're on the couch. But if you went out and talked to people in Las Vegas who were saved by sports, you would come to realize like I did that it's a really integral part of the fabric of our society. And, you know, it's happening now with the pandemic, right? The first, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You could, you can make the case uh, while certainly different circumstances, we are seeing it as a, a touch point for, for reopening things. That, that's what I think after any kind of a trauma, whether, you know, again, medical, natural disaster, terrorism, you, you have a tendency to hunker down. And then when you're ready, what you want to do is go back out and be part of society again. And certainly with the pandemic, that's, you know, been a long time coming. But when you want to do that, well, you know, where can you do that better than at a stadium? Are, you know, the big stadiums in the United States are bigger than the biggest churches, synagogues, mosques. There's no bigger gathering place. And when you can go sit among 50, 60, 70,000 other people, shoulder to shoulder with no mass and high five strangers again. Well, that's when normalcy has truly returned post pandemic. And it's something people have been waiting for, for a year and a half. Yeah. And you're seeing it. I mean, uh, it, in a lot of ways, certainly in the past year, you know, the sports section has become the news section. I, you know, when the NBA shut down, it felt like a, a cultural moment as much as it did a, a social, uh, you know, a sports moment last year. And there's, uh, I think it was maybe Christine Brennan or somebody you spoke to in the, in the book talked about, you know, the sports section almost is no longer an escape uh, anymore. We, we have seen this, this sort of interesting blend uh, where sports is news. And I think for a lot of people, uh, even sports fans that, uh, you know, they may be getting their news on, on sports center, you know, just in, in general, to some extent. 
Yeah. And when, you know, they started with what's the first event, right? I think NASCAR was one of the first, you know, sports to have some fans back. And it was almost, you know, it predated restaurant and bar openings. You know, it was like the, the, you know, the gauge of, of how things were going. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Well, you you've traveled uh, quite a bit, and and I think you know you make the case in here, even from your own experiences, that sports tends to be this unifier. I mean, you can be almost anywhere in the world, and if there's a sport that's taking place, even in uh, particularly in another country, a, a sport that you're not familiar with, it's it's fairly easy to strike up a conversation and uh, you know break some barriers. I think with with people just through sports, I've seen it myself, certainly uh, on my own travels. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing, every airport. And every airport hotel in the world has it's a bar. And if there's one thing every one of those bars has, it's a TV with sports on. And when you sit down there, you look up at that screen. It doesn't matter if it's cricket or, you know, whatever. The person next to you is happy to talk to you about that. And, you know, I personally have spent a lot of time in Ireland. And so they'll have sports I'm really unfamiliar with, like snooker and cricket. And people are, you know, bending over backwards to explain them to you. And instantly, you know, you're having a beer with someone and, and sports, you know, brings you together. Yeah, it's, it's happened to me too. My wife and I, a number of years back, were in Australia on a Kangaroo Island, you know, just south of Adelaide. And we were taking this tour and there was another group of us and the other group left. And we started talking to the guy and there was an Australian rules football game in Adelaide the next day. And it was the best part of the whole trip, just listening to this guy, you know, tell us about the game, which we went to the next day and and had fans explain the whole thing to us. But, you know, similar thing, uh, you know, a, a sport that I wasn't familiar with that all of a sudden uh, everyone is just so friendly and so, so willing to, uh, to talk about it. That's amazing. One of the things about traveling and sports around the world is you see people wearing a Yankees hat or different logos. And I was in Norway at a farmer's market and I saw a guy in the University of Texas hat. So I flashed <laughs> him the hook em horn sign and he was surprised. The Norwegians and, are big Longhorns uh, fans from what, I, from what I understand. Well, I think it's because so many of them work in the oil industry. They go to Texas to get engineering degrees. But, um, you know, I know if you see a University of Alabama fan pretty much anywhere in the yeah. world and you uh, say roll tide, they're pretty excited. So, you know, it's a it's a commonality we share that you don't get in, you know, that many other ways. You don't typically, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I don't wear a Star Wars hat when I travel. Right. <laughs> no, I, I understand. One of the things, uh, again, Larry, I guess big picture as I think about the, the themes here in your book is the importance of sports, uh, obviously for the individuals, for the fans but also as we've been talking about for these communities, a lot of our readers are in sports sales. They work for cities. Uh, they are making mm -hmm. the case, not just to sports event organizers to bring their events to town, but in a lot of cases, they're making their case to justify their own budgets to a larger government entity who may question, why do we need a triathlon here or a 5k or, or, or an event like that? What do you think can be learned, I guess, for, for that part of our audience in terms of making the case for the power of sports? Why? these events are important, uh, either uh, not just economically even, but, uh, you know, for the health and well-being of the of the people participating. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I did in my research was travel to cities that I thought were profoundly aided by spectator sports. Two of those examples that leap out are, are Denver and Indianapolis, both cities that basically had vacant downtowns. And Denver had the largest empty downtown district of any city in the United States, 12 blocks of defunct warehouses in the middle of the city. And if you go there now, you know, you stay at the Four Seasons or, you know, go to these condos or the revamped Union State. Well, none of that was there. And before they built Coors Field and before they moved all the stadiums downtown. 
And it really profoundly changed the city. And India is a very similar situation. It was intentionally done. You know, Lucas Oil Field, I went to the Super Bowl there, you know, to be able to leave the Super Bowl and walk to your hotel versus fighting traffic, right? And it's not just the stadium. It's, you know, they they got the, the, the NCAA to move its headquarters there, a lot of Olympic teams. So, you know, it's a concerted effort and it, it doesn't work for every city because it requires success on a lot of levels. But when you think about some of the events, again, Indy, right? The Indy 500, largest single day spectator event in the world. Well, that's for... A hundred years, you know, three hundred thousand people come to India. Every hotel is sold out. Right, that's got to be good, you know, for some people who work in the hospitality industry in Indianapolis. And you know, examples like any kind of annual big draw, you know, certainly the Masters is good for Augusta. The F one race is phenomenal for Monaco. And you know, there's examples like this. You mentioned even triathlon, right? There's one relative close to where I live in Lake Placid sells out. You know, everybody who wants to rent their home, you know, minimum stay a week to go to the to get a room for the Ironman Lake Placid. So whether they're participant events or spectator events, or you go to New York during the New York Marathon, right? Half the people you see in the street are wearing jackets mm-hmm. from or you know hats from the marathon. So certainly very important to the economy of the places where these events are held and all the groups that, you know, again, when I went to the Super Bowl, I stayed at a hotel that had been completely taken by Pepsi. And there's a hotel like that for every company attending. Right. And you even talk, there's research there. And um, when we talk about the, from a health perspective, I think, you know, a lot of the goals of, of sports commissions when they bring events in or when they organize their own events is again, not just the economic impact, but uh, they see themselves as, as having a benefit to the community. People are running, they're participating, they're healthier. And there have been studies. I think there were there were some. Even you mentioned uh, outside of the Olympics, you sit and watch the Olympic games, and uh, you tend to want to get out and do something after after watching uh, what you've just you know these extraordinary yeah. things you've just seen on television. Absolutely, and it's not you know that doesn't happen in every sport. For you know, like I said, I love NFL football, but I never watch a game and say <laughs> I want to put on a helmet and go out and sure. have somebody hit me in the street, right? But um, but there are sports where that does happen, where watching them turn spectators into participants. And the Olympics is probably the best example, especially now that we have it every two years, you know, versus four when I was growing up. And every time there's a surge in gym memberships and people get interested, they see sports. You know, th- this is a perfect example. Tokyo, two new sports this year are surfing and rock climbing, both of which are really interesting to watch, but most people have never seen, right? So when people watch surfing for the first time at the Olympics, it's adrenaline pumping, you know, it's great spectator sport. The next time that they go on a vacation to, you know, Waikiki or Puerto Rico, and there's, you know, learn to surf lesson on the beach, they can try it. The rock climbing is indoor. You know, you can do that in any city in the world, pretty much, once you see it. And and that's what, when they debut new sports historically at the Olympics, there are big surges in those sports. And this is, Tokyo is perfect for that. You are listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. And now a word from the sponsor of this episode. Few destinations can offer facilities as incredible as the location itself, but Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, Florida's Paradise Coast, is truly a sports paradise. Its brand new Paradise Coast Sports Complex and other facilities are perfect for soccer, lacrosse, football, baseball, softball, golf, pickleball, virtually every sport. And naturally, there's no better location for water skiing, sailing, and other on-the-water competitions. Off the field, athletes and their families can enjoy everything Paradise has to offer. Incredible beaches, epic outdoor adventures, team-friendly restaurants, and more. If you're looking for sports venues and a destination that can't be beat, only Paradise will do. Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, Florida's Paradise Coast. 
To learn more, visit sportsinparadise.com. And now, back to the conversation. Well, Larry, let's talk about Tokyo for a minute. As we're having this conversation, we're on the cusp of, of the Olympic Games. It's, of course, been an extraordinary uh, Olympic cycle. We talked about every two years. It'll actually be every one year <laughs> this year because the Winter Games <laughs> yeah. are right around the corner. But uh, I guess in the in the context of you know, what you've written here and the research you've done, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing this year uh, leading into Tokyo as to whether this event should even be taking place. What are the reasons for it or the or the benefits of even, even having it? What are your thoughts there about this coming Olympics. It's, you know, been one of the most, uh, arguably one of the most high profile and, and most debated uh, events, it seems that we've had at that level in, in modern history. Yeah, absolutely. And it, personally, I mean, I've been pretty conservative safety wise in the whole pandemic. You know, I wore a mask. I was eager to be vaccinated. I'm all for being cautious about COVID, but I was very much hoping the Olympics would go on. And for a number of reasons, you know, and, and it's, it's, not the easiest event to contain, but you know they don't have to have live spectators. They're going to be very limited. They're not going to have many international ones at all. And you know the athletes are presumably mostly vaccinated, tested, just like in our sports here, and housed separately. You know, so it is manageable. But to me, all of the editorials, all of the media has been about COVID. I've written some op-eds on other advantages of the Olympics, including the public health aspect of, you know, most people who watch the Olympics watch it on TV, whether they're spectators allowed or not, right? Mm -hmm. How many people, I don't know anyone who was going to go to Tokyo and is it now, um, you know, but I, you know, so most people all around the world watch it on TV and they still get those benefits, the, the public health benefit. Certainly the Olympics have a, a really long history of advancing social progress, you know, Jesse Owens and the Mexico City games, we think about, well, you know, Japan has, has a big internal problem with racism that has been alleviated in recent years, largely through sport. And this is the, the watershed. This is like their Jackie Robinson moment. So that's really important to the Japanese people. And then this is also going to be a record participation worldwide for LGBTQ athletes. And, you know, uh, the city of Tokyo changed its laws to accommodate them. They built this pride house, new civic center. It's really going to showcase that. I mean, it was only it's hard to believe it was only three years ago that Team USA had the first openly gay American man, Adam Rapon, win a medal. And, you know, now now that's going to be normal. And I think that's very good for society and, again, showcased by the Olympics. So there's a lot of different kind of positives that would have been lost if that platform, that stage didn't roll around in Tokyo, yeah. not to mention all the money that the government <laughs> spent building facilities. For sure. Well, we at Sports Travel will be one of the lucky few, I guess, uh, who will be over there for the games on a, a media credential. But you are correct. The, obviously, the vast majority of people are not able to travel to Tokyo this year, which is unusual in itself. But uh, as we're coming out of the pandemic, there are a number of events. Obviously, most events now are starting to come back. Do you get the sense, Larry, that people are going to be even more interested in in traveling to some of these uh, bucket list events just because they were denied the chance to do it over the last year or so? Yeah, absolutely. And I've talked to a lot of travel agents and sports travel companies that specialize in these, you know, things like the Super Bowl and Monaco. Yeah. And bucket list travel in general, it does, it can be safaris, not all sports, you know, not just sports is, is sort of through the roof because people had this realization that, you know, maybe you can't wait forever. Who knows, you know, what the next pandemic will be, you know, they were cut off and we may be cut off again. So, you know, do what you want to do once in a lifetime while you can. And for a lot of sports fans, that's things like 
going to Wimbledon, going to the Masters, and especially when you watched a year of them on TV with no fans and it became really stark difference. You know, I remember that when golf came back to TV, that the, even the, the, the players, they'd make the putt and turn to wave to the audience, keep forgetting that there was nobody there. Right. And so, yeah, I think bucket list sports travel is going to be sort of through the roof. But the other thing is a lot of the travel agents I talked to said people want to combine it with other things, right? So maybe they love tennis and they've always wanted to see the Great Barrier Reef. So they'll go to the Australian Open instead of maybe the US Open to, to knock two things off. And I mean, Japan's a perfect, I've been to Japan many times. I love Japan, it's a fantastic country to visit. And so if I was gonna go to a Summer Olympics, this would have been it. And two things I love personally are skiing and Italy. So Cortina is gonna be coming up in a few years. You know, So that's all of these, You know, the World Cup, you, know, you wanna plan it for when it's someplace you wanna go. and and people, you know, some people are planning these trips four years ahead. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, the uh, IOC is planning things 11 years ahead now. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's no excuses, I guess, if you really want to do. Go Paris see won't be bad either. <laughs> <laughs> no. And Australia won't be bad either if uh, if they go where they're, it looks like they're going to Brisbane as well. So a lot of great destinations on tap. Larry, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, I did want to ask you, uh, you mentioned that you've written some other books. I have to ask, cause uh, I saw it in your, in your bio, but you wrote a book about world records about the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, very curious to hear I, I, what that experience was like. I, I did. I, well, I mentioned that I like stories that hide in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone knows what the Guinness Book of World Records is, but nobody knows anything about it. It's the number one selling copyrighted book in human history. Mm-hmm. The only books that have more copies out are the Bible and Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, <laughs> neither of which are copyrighted, and the Quran. So Everyone grew up with it. It had a TV show, you know, a lot of different angles to it, but nobody, the history is really rich. Most people don't even know it was started by the Guinness Brewery, even though it has the same name. So, you know, my book was about the history of it and why people are fascinated. And I personally set three records, do a little George Plimpton participatory journalism. Oh, very nice. All right. Uh, Of course. uh, what, What did you break? And do you still hold those records? The only one that I make, they don't make it easy to find out because most of the records aren't in the book. The book Mm -hmm. is like a best of, it has about less than 10% of the records. So you actually have to like apply for your own record to find out if it still exists, if it's not in the book. So I broke the record for the most different ski trails skied in their entirety in eight hours, which may still stand. Mm -hmm. The other two I know were broken because I saw them in the paper. And one was the longest marathon casino poker playing session, which was (laughs) 72 hours and two minutes. Actually broken by uh, a professional poker player, so it got a lot of attention. And the longest distance traveled between two rounds of golf played in the same day, which was seventy four hundred ninety six miles, Sydney to Newport Beach, California. That's fantastic. That's a not an easy record to set, I would imagine, let alone to break. Well, the skiing one was the only one that actually required a modicum of physical skill. Uh, the other ones were more logistical, but um, you know, I'm proud of them all, and I've got the certificates. They're like diplomas; they can't take them away from me. Well, you should you should be proud. So, uh, Larry, uh, for the fan book, uh, some information on where people can find it or or where they can buy it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hardcover nationally available. You know, I always encourage people to patronize their indie bookstore, but certainly Amazon, be it Barnes and Nobles, it's a click away. It's on audiobook. It's you can get it on CD if you still have a CD player, all of those formats. And I do have a website, uh, sportsfansbook.com that I built just to have a compilation of links and articles about this topic. It has an excerpt from the book. It's not to order the book, but it's just to learn more about all the great things about sports fandom. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out to chat with us. It's, uh, as I said, it's a great read, especially for our audience uh, to make the case for why sports are important and the, and the benefits of, of being a fan. Larry, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. This has been another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewurz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.